Our lives are framed by numbers, tracking our performance in school, our financial health, and our physical and emotional well-being. While discrete data can help us figure out what we might do to improve a situation, it's only part of the statistical story. There's other information, other data that might be useful as well. The importance of linking data is the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me are regular panelists, John Baylor, Chair of Miami Statistics Department, and Richard Campbell, Professor Emeritus in Media, Journalism, and Film. Our guest today is Katie Heron. Heron is an Associate Professor in Quantitative Methods at the UCL Great Ormond Street Institute of Child Health. Her methodological research focuses on the development of statistical methods and synthetic data for data linkage, and particularly for evaluating the quality of linkage. She aims to develop methods to exploit the rich data that are collected about populations as we interact with services throughout our lives. Heron's current research links data from health, education, and social care at a national level in order to improve our understanding of the health of individuals from birth to young adulthood. And Heron's work in this area was recognized by the Royal Statistical Society, which awarded her the 2021 Wood Medal. Katie, thank you so much for being here today and congratulations on this honor. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Could you explain to us what data linkage is? So data linkage is about bringing together different pieces of information about the same individual that might be captured in different data sources. <clears throat> so when we bring together from data from different data sources, we start to build up a picture of someone's life. It's like bringing together different pieces of a jigsaw to try and create a bigger picture and every additional piece of information that we can gather from different places, um, every additional piece of information helps. So linking data from different services and what we often do is link data from government departments, for example, the National Health Service in the UK or the Department of Education to understand how different parts of people's lives fit together. And hopefully, ultimately, in the end, that enables people in the government to make decisions in a more joined up way. So can could you flesh us, this out a little bit? I, I like the, the jinx, jigsaw puzzle image. And all of, all of a sudden I found myself thinking about the number of times I've had missing pieces. <laughs> <laughs> so it's certainly some of the bias comments that you make in your work, you probably address that issue of maybe some of those pieces that might be missing. But I'm just asking for just a, a specific particular example that you think would really help kind of flesh out the, the use of data linkage. Yeah, okay, so when we interact with services, so you go to the doctor or you go to school or start a new job, uh, a record is created that helps those organisations fulfil their roles. But it, but it turns out that those data sources are incredibly valuable for research because they capture so much of the population. So, for example, linking data from hospitals for babies who were born too early or preterm with education data that's captured later on in childhood can help us to understand the needs of preterm babies and how we might be able to best support them during the early years in order to help prepare them for school. This example was quite close to my heart. Um, my daughter was born at 28 weeks, um, so almost three months before my due date. 
And obviously at the start I was terrified about the, the immediate future, but as the sort of immediate danger passed, I was more uncertain about what the long term oh. um, might bring. So linking together data across the life course, we, we talk about it from cradle to grave, is, is incredibly informative and valuable. And I, yeah, I, I think bringing together information from, from lots of different places helps us to build that picture, that jigsaw of bringing together different needs and, and support for people. You talk in your research about missing links. Give, us a, give an example of a missed link. Yeah, so, okay, if we, ideally, we would have a, a unique identifier that would capture the same individual in different data sets. That's very rarely available. In some countries, in the Nordic countries, for example, they've got a long history of population registries and personal identification numbers, so it's a little bit more straightforward. But definitely not in the UK, so for, we don't have the National Health Service number and our education data and vice versa, and none of that's on employment records or tax records. So we use a set of partial identifiers, like name, date of birth, address, to try and um, find records that belong to the same people. But because those identifiers might not be completely unique for a person, or they might contain messy, um, missing, or incorrect information, it means that we don't always get the linkage exactly right. So that's particularly the case for the types of data that I'm talking about, routinely collected data that's collected not for research purposes, so it's not necessarily completely accurate. And, you know, when you're linking data from different time periods as well, things change. Women change their surnames, um, people change their addresses, they move around. Month and day of birth might get transposed, those kind of things. So there are, there are different approaches for finding the best links. Straightforward method is deterministic linkage or rule-based linkage where you come up with a set of rules to decide are these records a link, do they belong to the same person or not? Or a probabilistic approach which incorporates probabilities and takes into account the fact that not all identifiers in a record might agree but they give you, um, they reflect the likelihood that records really do belong to the same people. So when we have a missed link, that means that we're unable to find the correct record for somebody. Mm -hmm. um, and when we have a false link, that means that we erroneously link together uh, records that belong to different people. And those different types of errors have their own implications and, and can cause different challenges for research. So sometimes you might want to um, prioritise minimising missed links, and sometimes you might want to prioritise minimising false links and the two are usually traded off against each other. Mm -hmm. So for example, a very simple example, uh, a study that I worked on was looking at uh, infection rates for children in paediatric intensive care. So we have a very good registry data set that captures information on children admitted to paediatric intensive care, but it doesn't accurately collect in infection status. That's recorded separately in a labor laboratory data set. Mm -hmm. So we try to link these two data sets together. If we miss links, we fail to identify that somebody in paediatric intensive care had an infection, then we would underestimate the infection rate. And if we have false links, we link records, infection records for a child that really didn't have the infection, then that can cause us to overestimate infection rates. And if you, if you take that a step further, if we're thinking about trends over time, you might want to 
prioritise areas that cancel each other out. So mm. overall, you might have the same amount of mismatches, the same amount of false matches. So overall, you get the correct infection rate. But if you, it's a little bit more nuanced than that, because if you have differing data quality over time, for example, in identifiers improving in more recent data collection, then you could have more accurate linkage at the end of the study period and less accurate linkage at the start of the study period, which might seem like infection rates are increasing when really it's just an artifact of the data quality. So when you, when you were introducing that topic, that you were saying that sometimes you may want to, to sort of be willing to make one error more than another. Yeah. Can you give an example of, of when you might be prefer to minimizing missed links versus another yeah. scenario when you might want to minimize false links? So an example would be if um, if you had if you were trying to do some sort of fraud detection, you would want to capture as many possible candidate links as possible. Yeah. You could then follow them up at a later date to try and discard the ones that you're not interested in, but you want to start out by ca uh, casting the net really widely and get as many candidate records as possible. So that would be a case of maximizing sensitivity of the linkage. Okay. If you want to think of an example where specificity is more important or minimizing the false matches, you could think about something that's used for operational purposes. So if we are administering drugs to somebody, we want to be absolutely certain that we've got the right records for that person in case of any contradictions. So what, what, how hard is it to do this? You know, I'm just, you know, so this, I mean, I, as, as you were talking about this, the rule-based approaches, the probabilistic approaches, I found myself wondering, you know, do you, do you find that you're delighted if you get half of them on the first pass and then you have to struggle with half or, I mean, what's, what's a good target for kind of, as you think about, it seems like you'd have to process this in waves. Yeah, it really depends. It really depends on the question that you're asking from the data. It really depends on the research question. Um, and, the, and the, the sorts of data that you're using and how important it is to capture the whole population or not. Okay. So, for example, some colleagues of mine at UCL were linking data for um, a cohort of homeless people. And because the data was so difficult to obtain and it was so messy and, you know, people move around so much and addresses, of, of course, are really difficult for that population. I think they got around 60% linkage, so they matched 60% of their records to hospital records. And that was considered to be, you know, quite good, really, for that, that population. Yeah, that's great. But I think in, in other data sets, you would expect much higher linkage rates. In um, a study that I'm involved in that's linking hospital data with education data for all children in England, it's called the eChild study, um, we've linked 99% of records for um, school children to their hospital records. So that's, you know, much better. But the important thing is who you miss in that 1% or that 40%. So if you if, if those areas, if those mislinks are random, then that's, you know, a, a missing data problem. You, you obviously have a smaller sample size, which has implications for power, which is sometimes less of a problem in the sorts of administrative data that we're talking about because the sample sizes are so large, they cover so much of the population. But if the errors are non-random, which is actually what we often find, it's usually the, the more vulnerable groups or the, the ones that we're particularly interested in who are more highly mobile, change addresses more frequently. Um, if the errors are more likely to happen for those groups, then you have the potential to introduce selection bias in your mm. analysis, which, which is that, you know, they're really problematic. And we do see that. It's all about the underlying data quality. So whether 
it's um, healthy men who don't go to see the doctor very frequently. There might be differences in their data capture compared with women or, you know, women are more likely to change their names, so they might be less likely to link. But we, we also see huge differences according to ethnicity and ethnic groups, um, more complicated name structures or less familiar sorts of names that might be more prone to having typographical errors if someone's recording those names. Um, we, yeah, we, we often see differential linkage rates according to um, ethnicity and also to social status, health, uh, health status and lots of other things. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking with Katie Heron, the RSS's 2021 Wood Medal awardee about data linkage. Katie, as you were talking about this, you mentioned the issue of bias and selection bias. I wonder, this sounds super complicated, but also makes so much sense to try to sort of get this very holistic, broad view of how someone is doing, since we're talking about, we've been talking about health a lot. But I wonder, what are some things that researchers who want to do this kind of linking, what should they keep in mind to try to mitigate bias that might creep into their their work in certain ways, whether it's selection bias or other kinds of biases? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think there are two elements to this. The first is optimizing the linkage strategy and getting the linkage as accurate as possible, which is to some extent constrained by the underlying data quality and also time and resource. You can spend forever trying to tweak the algorithm to make sure that you're capturing as many uh, uh, people as possible. So there's a lot of optimization and design that's important for linkage algorithms and especially considering what you know about the data and if you know that certain groups are less likely to link, for example. Once you've accepted that it's unlikely to ever get perfect linkage, especially with messy administrative data that people, you know, there's, there's always some human error involved, then it's about understanding where the errors are, trying to describe them trying to account for them in analysis and to understand what the implications might be in terms of bias. And there's lots of things we can do. So very simply, we can compare the characteristics of the records that we have linked with the records that we haven't linked. So that again is analogous to the missing data problem. You want to know whether if you've got missing data, are the people who dropped out of your study like the ones who stayed in the study? So it's very similar for a linkage problem really. You can try and estimate the linkage error rates, false matches and mismatches by using different approaches. So you might have a subset of the data where you really are sure that you um, have accurate linkage. It might be um, for a certain group of the records you do have a unique identifier completed. And so based on that, you can try and estimate the um, linkage quality that you then apply to the rest of the data set. So using a gold standard or a reference data set, basically, to estimate error rates and to try and work out how the errors are distributed amongst the groups or subgroups that you're interested in. You can also compare with um, external data sources. So if we're thinking about linking to um, mortality records, do the mortality rates that we end up with in the linked data make sense compared to what we expect of the population? And We can think about positive and negative controls. So if there are a group of records that you think definitely should have a match, how many of those do you, how how many of those do you think? If there are a group of records that you definitely think shouldn't match, so for example, linking male health records to a hospital records to a birth, something that definitely shouldn't 
happen in the data? How many how many of those do you come up with that could be in, indicative of a false match? So there's lots of things that you can do to try and describe and understand the error rates. And then in the analysis, it's about reflecting the uncertainty that you have in the data. So not being too certain about, not being overly certain about the um, inferences that you make or properly accounting for that uncertainty within your analysis. So you can think about doing multiple imputation approaches like you would with missing data problems again or quantitative bias analysis. So I'm going to put myself in the position of being a journalist who's just read your paper, your study on the associations between pre-pregnancy psych psychosocial risk factors and infant outcomes. So I'm reading this and I'm trying to make sense of it and of course I get to the numbers and I don't understand them because I'm not a statistician. So what I want what I have to do as a journalist is translate this for the general public. So what I want to know from you is what do I need to tell them about this? I mean, I understand like what groups are most at risk, which is really interesting. This is a really important study because I, I want to get it right. So how do I, how do I talk about uh, women who are more at risk than uh, for the reasons that you list, mental health issues, being in, a, in a, uh, an environment, there's a, probably a lot of uh, maybe abuse going on, high deprivation areas. How do I report how much more at risk these women are? How do I say that? Because I don't understand the numbers that you, you've used. Now, if I'm really good, I'm going to come and talk to you about this, right? Because <laughs> I want to get this right. Yeah, I think, so the study that I did looked at, looked at outcomes for different groups of, mothered, of mothers. We, we looked at teenage mothers, mothers living in more deprived areas, and those with a history of mental health conditions or admissions for self-harm, violence or substance abuse. And as we expected, we saw that teenage mothers had some of the, the worst outcomes, and the outcomes that we looked at were birth outcomes, um, uh, preterm birth weight um, and infant mortality. But we also found that prior teenage mothers, so irrespective of current age, if a mother had given birth um, the first time as a teenager, they also had children with worse outcomes. And those with mental health conditions or history, a history of adverse, adversity-related admissions, we, we, we see that these groups also stand to benefit from additional support irrespective of their age. So lots of the interventions that we have developed, or let me put this another way, the primary focus of interventions for additional support during and post-pregnancy in the UK focus on um, teenage mothers. But what we, what we see in the data is by looking at the maternal history, it's not, it's not as simple as just age. We can pick other groups as well or we can observe other groups who who are equally as likely as teenage mothers to have low birth weight babies, for example. And actually what we found is that the biggest group, the biggest group in terms of numbers, although their risk was not necessarily as high as some of the other mothers, is mothers living in the most deprived areas. Mm. So in terms of population attributable risk, if we were going to intervene, then tackling the upstream problems of, of poverty could improve outcomes for the largest numbers of families. 
I, I enjoyed the, this, this work. I, I thought it was really interesting. And I, I, I saw that, you know, it had that nice connection to where we started the program, which is the linkage. So you had this component of, of linkage of deliveries and live births within this, within this study. Yeah. Uh, you know, but, but then I thought the, the recommendations, I thought it was, was really interesting, the idea of proportionate universalism. Yeah. As a, and that's something I had never, never seen and heard about. Could you talk just a little bit about what that meant and why, you know, that's sort of tied to what you were just mentioning was sort of how, how do you inter, intervene upstream in terms of, of uh, trying to improve outcome? Yeah, so proportionate, proportionate universalism is something that underpins lots of the home visiting or health visiting that happens in the UK and in many other countries for preventative um, programmes. So the idea is that you have a universal approach where everybody has the opportunity to be contacted and to be reached and supported, but then that the intensity or the level of that contact varies according to need. So the most vulnerable groups would have uh, more contacts, more uh, visits from a health visitor after birth. And the idea is that the universal approach means that everybody has an opportunity to be captured, to be recognised as being uh, in need of some support, but that you focus your attention on the groups that stand to benefit the most, according to the, um, the expected outcomes that that you're likely to have, depending on which group you fall into. So it, it seems like there was this, this, this really incredible, interesting follow-up that, that I'm, I'm sort of picturing, I'm picturing talking to you in, in 2023 or 2025, you know, that, that you start to implement some of the suggestions from this. If, if you were going to think about a, a future study to said, okay, based on what we've done here, here are things that might be done. And so if someone were to design an intervention, how, how might you use... How, how would you think about following up to, to assess whether or not your, your, the insights from here would bear fruit in that future? Yeah. yeah, that's a really good question. I think the intervention development part is, is the, the thing that's really, really needed. Yeah. And that needs to be focused on the types of mothers who need the most support and families. So for interventions to work they need to work for the groups of people that we're talking about and they're likely to look very different according to whether we're looking at teenage mothers or older mothers with a history of drug, uh, drug misuse for example. I think the really exciting thing about data linkage is that we've got this opportunity that once we have implemented these interventions we've got a way of evaluating them for the whole population of who, who gets them and who doesn't. So we know that the gold standard for evidence is uh, randomised controlled trials, but they're incredibly difficult to run and expensive to run, um, especially for something like health visiting that's so well established and it, it is universal already. You, it's very difficult to have a control group in that setting. But we can use these population-based approaches using linkage of across health, education and social care to really see the benefits or not of um, particular interventions yeah so much of the much of the hard work is done at the start in the intervention development and then what the one of the advantages of using population-based linkage studies is that we capture such a high proportion of the overall population including those hard to reach groups who might fall through the cracks in terms of traditional research um, studies now, do you get to play any role in the 
in the intervention? I mean, how much influence do you have? I mean, you do the study, you do the work, we know what needs to be done. And what do you feel like is your responsibility for, for, for that next step? Or do you, you know, we ask this of journalists all the time. They go out, they report stuff, and then they walk away and they do another story. Mm -hmm. And what they've reported is very revealing and something should be done about it. And you're in that situation too as, as somebody that's doing this kind of work. Yeah, I think what's, what's really important for this sort of work is, is having good engagement with stakeholders, so with the government departments, Department of Health and Social Care in the UK, to understand their priorities, but also to inform their work and their focus and where the funding is going to be. That's, that's, you know, that's, that's always a really important part of our work, is trying to translate what we see in the data into something that's going to be meaningful to help governments make decisions about where resources should be should be focused. So I think that ongoing engagement is incredibly important, and it's not just with not just with organisations and with government departments, but also with the public, because we're using data about the public, and we really need that sort of social contract so that we can continue to use these data for public benefit. So a lot of the work we do involves lots of patient and public involvement and we try to we try to get feedback on the work that we're doing we try to understand priorities of different groups to try and inform with, uh, the studies that we do and also to help us disseminate in ways that um, that aren't just academic well that's all the time we have for this episode of stats and stories katie thank you so much for being here today thank you for having me thanks katie Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.